Before our prayer, I'd like to begin the sermon by uh, reviewing what we had looked at before. A month ago, we opened up verses 20 through 23 in a sermon called A Quartet of Shockers. Verse 20, we saw Jesus shushed his disciples. Then he strictly charged the disciples that they should say to no one that he is the Christ. And then Jesus showed his sacrifice in verse 21. From then, Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary for him to go away into Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised. Third, Peter scolded his Lord. In verse 22, Peter scolded his Lord and Peter, taking him to himself, began to rebuke him, saying, God spare you, Lord. This absolutely will not happen to you. And then finally, Peter, uh, Jesus scorched his rock in verse 23. But he, turning, said to Peter, Go back behind me, Satan. You are a trap stick to me, because you are not mindful of the things of God, but instead the things of men. Let us pray. Father, what your son said to Peter in this portion of your word had to shake him to his very core. It shakes us just to read it, but it isn't there just to shake us. These words are there to warn us, to caution us, to humble us, to teach us, to prepare us. That's a lot. That's a lot. Minister to us now in power by your Holy Spirit that your word may land on each of us in great might and to great effect. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we went through this section uh, a month ago, I promised we'd come back and look at it a bit more closely and take more lessons. It was something that definitely called for further reflection beyond just a quick overview. So indeed... What we're looking at here probably was Peter's best day in his entire life, except for the day when Jesus called him, right? That Jesus would make up a a, a beatitude just for Peter and uh, congratulate him, in effect, for speaking the words revealed by the Father, tell him that he was a rock and that on the bedrock of what he just confessed, Jesus would build his church, that Peter would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven and so forth. That's just got to have been his best day ever, and then suddenly it's his worst day ever as Jesus turns and calls him Satan. From the best day ever to the worst day ever, well, the worst day ever so far, I think we've got to say, knowing the rest of his story. And it happened because he unwittingly, unwittingly lent his mind and his tongue to the tempter. How could that happen to him? How does that happen to us? Well, let's work at learning from this. And it's just going to have to be quick. I I know some people tease me about how long of a trip Matthew's being, but believe me, it could easily be three or four times as long sections such as this. This is just going to be a quick look, but we're going going to try to take a deep look. And first, working together, Roman numeral one, at recognizing that voice and mind, the tempter's mind and voice. So let's work together at recognizing it, Roman numeral one. And first, I just want to remark on the fact of it, letter A, the fact of it. Note very carefully carefully with me, first, in whom we're seeing this voice and mind? In whom? Well, this is not a blasphemous, drunk, carousing, vile unbeliever. This is not a Baal worshiper or a Satanist for that matter. This is Peter. He is a believer, first of all. He is a believer. He's a genuine believer. You say, well, Jesus called him you of little faith. Yeah, but little faith is not no faith. He did have genuine faith. He was a believer. And yet, Jesus rebuked him in this way and called him Satan. He was a believer, and he was a choice believer. Of all the people in the world, Jesus chose him to bring him to himself. Of all of his disciples, Jesus chose him and made him an apostle. Of all the apostles, he chose him and made him one of the inner three. Of the inner three, Jesus chose him and made him the first among equals. 
And yet this happens to him. He is a believer. He's a choice believer. And he is a person with constant exposure to Jesus. This didn't happen while he was far from home. This didn't happen when he was amid the pagans in China or Babylon or Africa. This happened inches, feet away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And still, the enemy of his soul was able to steal into his thoughts and speak through his lips. If that doesn't sober you, then I guess it's beyond my ability to do that. Because it sure sobers me to see in whom we see the tempter's mind and voice. Secondly, notice when we see it. It would make sense if we saw this at a low point in Peter's life, right? Sometime when he's struggling and having doubts and difficulties and maybe he's had a series of tragedies befall him and yet it's not that time. It is at a spiritual mountaintop in his life. At this point when he's at the, at the peak of his walk with Jesus so far. He had just given words to a revelation from the Father. And the Father's Son recognized it and said so much. And then having given words to the thoughts of the Father, seconds later, he gives words to the thoughts of the tempter. Same mouth, same man, same day. We've seen in whom and when, and now look where it happened. It happened in the very presence of Jesus. With Jesus standing right there, Jesus who with a word could send, Peter, uh, could send Satan running, and yet he allows Satan thus to tempt Peter. He allows Satan to make this foray into Peter. We will see later in the sermon, Lord willing, that Peter in fact did learn from it, and he did profit from it. But look, friend, If you think that the place of temptation is just bars and strip clubs and opium dens and and Planned Parenthood rallies or, or whatever, if you think that that or the beach, if you think that those are the only places of temptation, no, nope, no. This happened right in front of Jesus. So, I hope sobered by the fact of it, let's move on letter B. And note the brazenness of it. The brazenness of it. That is to say, the brazenness on Satan's part. The gall, the nerve, the sheer brass and boldness he shows uh, in not backing away. Well, he didn't back away from Peter. Here is this leading saint at the time. And obviously, Satan didn't look at Peter and say, well, there's no point trying with him. I'm never going to get anywhere in that mind. He's been listening to Jesus day and night. He's been walking with Jesus day and night. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles for Jesus. No way I'm going to make any progress in that mind. Obviously, that thought didn't even occur to him. Well, and you see why, didn't you? Because, don't you? Because, spoiler alert, he was successful. He was actually successful in getting his thoughts into Peter's brainium and his words out of Peter's mouth. And notice too that Satan did not back away from using Peter to get to Jesus. You just have to marvel in horror at how tireless Satan is, how nothing discourages him. And it's hard not to think of how easily discouraged Jesus' servants are. You know, there's this funny meme, a picture of of a woman calling out, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's a picture of a cat replying to her, you skip church when it rains. Well, we're so easily discouraged. And as I mentioned yesterday, uh, unbelief always finds excuses. Always finds excuses. But boy, not Satan. Nothing seems to discourage him. He had had a, a direct assault on Jesus in Matthew 4. And it had completely failed and yet he tries again and finds some success he can't get anywhere assaulting Jesus directly so perhaps he thought well perhaps if I come at him through a trusted friend he he knows who I am but Peter is a trusted friend he's his right hand man and he's just pronounced him as the person with the keys to the kingdom. Maybe now is just the time I can get through to him through Peter. Um, at, at this point, Charles Spurgeon would say, 
Take heed, O my soul. He's constantly trying to drive home the things he sees in Scripture to himself. And so we should say to ourselves, Take heed, O my soul. You have an enemy who is not discourageable. He's tireless. He never gives up. Day and night, 365, he's at it. And here it is with Peter. Letter C then, let us note more slowly and in depth the marks of it. Let's look at the marks of the tempter's mind and voice in and through Peter. And, and we'll be helped if we look at some precedents. Let's look at the first such incident in the Bible. I hope you're already turning to Genesis chapter 3. You know right where to find the first recorded incident in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll just lift out some principles here. And we'll see that they are not one-offs. Why should they be? They work so well here. Why would he abandon this approach? So, in Genesis 3, let's just set as a, as a backdrop the fact that God's will is very well known to Adam and Eve, right? They know exactly what they can eat and exactly what they can't eat. Is there any doubt about that to them? No, there can't be. God had said in so many words to Adam, see this tree? Don't eat it. The day you eat it, you will die, God the Creator says. God the Lord says. And so the serpent, we're told, is more crafty than any beast. And he appears in verse 1 and says to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And what's his angle there? It's to approach her self-pity. To uh, portray God as someone who's, who's just... Uh, stingy and, and doesn't care about her and isn't letting her have what she needs. So you're looking at this tree and not eating it. So I guess what God's told you, you can't eat any of the trees in the garden. So his first approach, and notice his pose. He doesn't come up and say, you know what I'm really interested in doing is absolutely ruining you and damning you and all your children to hell just so I can make God look bad. So how about it? You know, that's not his approach. Who does he pose as being here? Eve's enemy or her friend? Her friend. Her best friend. A better friend than who? Better friend than God. Apparently God doesn't want you to eat anything. I can't believe somebody would be that cruel. He appeals to self-pity. And then he goes on, and when she says, well, we're not supposed to eat or touch that, because in the day we do it, we'll die. He says in verse 4, you shall not surely die. And he goes on to say, in fact, God knows the day you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's appealed to her self-pity, and then he appeals to her self-will and her self-interest. So he says, you can do this thing that I've got you thinking about doing. You can do it, and you won't suffer a consequence for it. So just do what you want to do. He appeals to her self-will. Nothing bad's going to happen when you do this thing you want to do that God said don't do, but you, but you go ahead, poor you, you go ahead and you do what you want to do. Actualize yourself. Realize your full potential. And then he appeals to her self-interest because when in fact you do this, so far from being dead, you'll find your eyes open and you'll be on a par with God knowing good and evil. That's his song, of course, and he's trying to get her to hum along. He appeals to her self-pity. He appeals to her self-will. He appeals to her self-interest. So just keep that in mind. And, and by the way, how did that work for him? Sadly, very, very well. So now turn to Matthew 4. Another very easy book to find. So in Matthew chapter 4, we have Jesus who has just been, just been baptized and just heard the words of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the next stop that the Holy Spirit has for him, the next stop that the will of God has for him is not a palace. It's not the throne of David, but it's the desert. And it's not the sumptuous messianic feast we read about in the Old Testament. 
It's fasting for 40 days. But he's here by God's will. Note that. Verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now this means that he was conscious that God the Holy Spirit was leading him into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So that clearly was part of God's will. Notice that. In parallel to Genesis chapter 3, they knew what God's will was and Satan came up. Jesus knows what God's will and Satan comes up. And where does he start? Verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What is he appealing to? Self-pity. Self-pity. God won't let you eat, but look, you're the Son of God. If you're hungry, you just have to say. You created everything. If you're the Son of God, just tell these rocks to become bread, and then you can eat them. Same approach, although really rather different. Eve is surrounded by the best food ever. And Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. But he still tries to appeal to self-pity. And Jesus just pink away with that one. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus says. That didn't work. So let's see, what's the next on the list? Self-will. And so in verse 6, he says, Go up on the temple and throw yourself off, and you will force God's hand. You won't do it for yourself, so make God do something for you. Jump off the temple, make him send his angels to catch them. Just like Genesis 3, he appeals to self-pity. He appeals to self-will. What was the third one? Self-interest. Does he do that? Well, he takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says in verse 9, all these things I will give you if you... Die on the cross in submission to your Father's will? No, no. If you fall down and worship me. Does that appeal to Jesus' self-interest? Well, yes, it does. You want to be king? I'll show you how to be king without having to go onto the cross. Without having to submit yourself to the will of the Father. And bear the sins of the elect. And die on the cross under his wrath and fury. Just do this. Same Three approaches, and to this he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you will serve. Jesus was ready with the word of God on every occasion, and on every occasion he was ready, he was watching, he was prepared, he recognized what Satan was doing, and he countered it with a word from God exactly to the situation. So, just some points to ponder here before we move on. We've seen what he does. And he does the same thing here, doesn't he? Satan appears as Jesus' best friend. Now notice this is a theme. In the first, he appears as uh, Eve's best friend. In the second, does he appear and tell Jesus he wants to destroy him and kill him and wants him to be in misery? Is that what he says? No, I want you to eat. I want you to have God take care of you. I want you to rule over the kingdoms of the world, he says. What's his pose? Jesus' best friend. And what does he do here in chapter 16? Well, he actually approaches him through his best friend, doesn't he? Peter, one of the inner three, the first among equals. And he's able to get Peter's thinking in his mouth and catch him at a weak moment when he's not looking for it. And through Peter, because remember Jesus calls Peter what? What does he call Peter? Satan. And so where does he start? Self-pity. He says, God, spare you, Lord. In other words, this is too horrible to imagine what you've just said for me. This is too horrible. God, be propitious to you. God, spare you His wrath and His judgment. Self-pity. And where does He go next? He says, this absolutely will not happen to you. You must not walk into this. You must not give yourself to this. And if He doesn't, what's the implication? God's just going to have to find another way. Well now, that's the same thing he tried in chapter 4, isn't it? In a, a different form. Don't, you need to pity yourself, you need to assert yourself, and you need to achieve your goals by your own self-will. And Jesus knows that song. He's heard that song before. And that's why he can say to Peter, 
get back behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking the thoughts of man. So, as I say, here's some points we need to ponder about this. Notice that when when Satan dealt through Peter, he was able to piggyback on the very best of intentions on the very best day of Peter's life. When Peter is high and happy and glad and glorious... And he hears these horrible words from Jesus, which, we, as we talked about, horrible thing for anyone who loved Jesus to hear that he's going to do this. How, how could you not respond in human pity and horror? But Satan is able to piggyback on that best of good intentions and lead him to say something that in content is utterly unremarkable. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't blaspheme outwardly. He doesn't say forget God outwardly. It scarcely seems like an overt crime against God. And yet, just like the other situations, God's will is known and has been declared. Jesus knows what God's will is. This must happen, Jesus says. And still Satan appeals to self-pity, self-will, and self-interest. That's what he does to us. That's what he seeks to do through us. Recognize those marks of the voice. Now, secondly, how do we go about watching for that voice in mind? Jesus clearly was watching for it. How do we learn to watch for that voice in mind, whether in ourselves or in others? Well, I'd like to take you to a powerful passage, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Do turn there with me, please. And I'll show you how this speaks to us in this situation, actually teaches us just such a thing. First, uh, number one, we see a solid, a solid grounding in God's sufficient word at the beginning of this chapter. So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and, judgment, statutes and judgments which I'm teaching you to do. Verse 2, you shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep it. And he reminds them they've seen God's faithfulness, but more, they've heard God's word. Verse 5, see, I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my God commanded me. Verse 6, you shall keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom. No other nation has this. Verse 8, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? So in other words, just like in every situation, and just like in our situation, they have a sufficient word from God. Do we have a sufficient word from God? More than they. We have the final word from God. So that's in place. Now, secondly, look at the constant need in verses 9 through 14. The constant need. The first words are, only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully. Same verb is repeated twice. Guard yourself. Watch yourself. Be on guard about yourself. Keep yourself and your soul very carefully, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen and they depart from you. Verse 10 Remember that you were assembled that you, I might cause them to hear my words, that they may learn to fear me. And then verse 12, Yahweh spoke to you. You didn't see a form. You heard a voice. In verse 13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to do. That is the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Devarim, the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tables. And Yahweh commanded me at that time, to teach you these statutes and judgments. So verse 9 tells us a constant need to watch your soul, not to relax, always to be on guard. You've got the Word of God, so don't forget it. Keep it in the forefront of your mind. Don't relax. Keep your vigilance over your soul. Because Next, we see there is a constant threat in verses 15 through 20. There's a constant threat. So keep your souls very carefully, he says. Very emphatic wording in Hebrew. Constantly watch yourself. Keep your souls very carefully, uh, since you didn't see any form, but, you, but Yahweh spoke to you. Verse 16, lest you act corruptly and make a Grave an image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, and so forth. So in other words, there's a constant temptation to idolatry. And that's what our hearts are. John Calvin said rightly and biblically that our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly on a conveyor belt. And what is the, an idol at essence? What is an idol at, at base? 
Anything we put in the place of God, anything we revere more than we revere God, care about more than we care about God, go after more than we go after God, as Satan got Eve to do, as Satan tried to get Jesus to do and was able to get Peter to try to persuade Jesus to put himself and his comfort and his well-being ahead of the glory and the will of God. There's a constant threat of idolatry. That's why we need to keep constant vigilance over our souls because there's a constant weakness there. And then there's a haunting example that Moses gave us, lest they think that they are invulnerable to this. In verse 21, he says, Now Yahweh was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross. Verse 23, so keep yourselves. In other words, I didn't keep myself. There was a time when I let my temper and my self-will and my pride come between me and my reverence for God. That time when he said, listen, you rebels, shall we bring water out of the rock? And God had said, speak to the rock. But he yells, he speaks to them, not to the rock. And then he strikes the rock twice. And God says, you're not going into the land for that. He didn't watch himself, he's saying. So you watch yourself. You keep yourselves lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God. For Yahweh, verse 24, is a consuming fire a jealous God. And really this goes on through the rest of the chapter, but I, I wanted to focus on, on those parts with you. Solid grounding, constant need, perennial threat, and the haunting example. Let's look at some reinforcement. Look at the famous chapter 6. You say, oh, I know what chapter 6 is. That's the hero Israel chapter. Yes, it is, but it also has bearing on what we're talking about today. So just like in chapter 4, he reminds them that they've got the Word of God. Well, this is a refrain, isn't it? This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you. And then this wonderful confession, verse 24. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. And these words must be on your heart. Teach them, have them everywhere. And then he says in verse 10, then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, houses full of good things, cities, vineyards, water everywhere. Verse 12, then beware. Literally, watch yourself. Same word, keep watch over yourself. Lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, Yahweh you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and you won't walk after other gods. So again, the same sort of setting, that they've got the word of God, and God's going to bring them into a place where they've got abundance and everything they need, and they're riding high, and it's just at that moment, not when everything's low and hard, but when everything's high and happy, at that moment, watch yourself, verse 12 lest you have this constant temptation snare you. It happens again in chapter 8. This is the last one we'll look at, but it's not the last there is. It's all over. But chapter 8 is just a really great and powerful one. It's the same sort of setting. Look at verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. The entire commandment that I'm commanding you today, you should be careful to do. Well, there it is. The reminder that they've got the Word of God. And here's the, the verse that Jesus quoted, that uh, he brought you through wilderness, kept you alive, uh, and so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So you'll come into this land, verse 7, brings you into a good land, brooks of waters, fountains and springs, everything an agricultural culture could want. Uh, tree, fig trees, pomegranates, wheat, barley, olive oil, honey. I mean, this is beyond Bitcoin to them. You know, this is riches untold. Uh, food without scarcity, verse 9 iron ore and so forth. Verse 10, you'll eat and be satisfied and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land which he's given you. Everything's great and wonderful. And then he says in verse 11, watch yourself. Same word, beware. You watch yourself because that's when you're vulnerable. 
lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments. And you eat and you are satisfied. And verse 14, your heart becomes lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God and find yourself tempted by the idols around you. You turn away from him and you turn to them because the heart is an idol factory. And there's a constant need for self-watch. So this is just three very vivid passages of many, many, many. That is the constant need we have. The constant need we have is to watch ourselves. And there's this refrain that the time most to watch ourselves is not when we're low and vulnerable, but when we're high and happy and when everything is going really great. That seems to be a very vulnerable point. That's just the point Peter was at, isn't it? the high spiritual point of his entire life. Now let's look at uh, number three, Roman numeral three. We've seen the need for constant vigilance, so what do we do about it? Countering that voice and mind, that is to say, countering the voice and mind of the tempter. Well, in, in snapshot form, in a nutshell, let's look at what's involved in it. What, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get back behind me, Satan. See, now, that really is the essence of it. Like the other examples, Peter had a word from God. What had Jesus said? He said, it is necessary for him. In fact, Matthew told us, do you remember, that Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary for him to go away. So he didn't merely say it. He demonstrated from the Old Testament that it was necessary. He, of course, God the Son, knew that that was the decree of the Trinity from eternity past, that he would come and do this. But beyond that, he, sh- he, couldn't, he couldn't show them that, but he could show them the Old Testament. And so he showed them that it was, what was that word again? necessary, that it was necessary for him to go and be tortured, rejected, and die, be buried, and then rise again. He'd shown him, Peter had the word of God with clarity and with authority, and yet he felt within himself a great powerful surge of emotion against that word, to reject that word. And it felt friendly, it felt good, it felt right. He didn't feel like he was saying something awful or he wouldn't have said it. And with this tide of good emotion at this really great moment in his life, he gives voice to this. And what what is it? I've said that in form, it is not such a horrible thing to say, and yet it is the most horrible thing to say at the heart of it. In intention, it was not. In intention, it was, I love you and I can't bear to think of this happening to you. But what was at the heart of it? Jesus had said, he'd shown them from the word of God that it was necessary that he do this. And when Peter says, no, this will never happen to you, what's he saying? God's will for you is not good. I love you more than God loves you. I care for you more than God cares for you. You need to reject the Word of God and not let that happen to you. Isn't that right at the heart of it? Yes, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't even think he's saying that. Oh, this is so instructive, beloved ones. This is so instructive for all the false teaching and the apostasy and the declension and the low, low spiritual life that professed Christians have today. Behind so much of that is just exactly this. The idea that we're more caring than God, really. We're, we're, we're more loving than God. We're more compassionate than God. We're wiser than God. And, and we tolerate people declining from God's Word and turning away from his God's, God's Word by the same sorts of feelings. No, on the surface, it was not a horrible thing to say, but at heart, it was the, the words of Satan. It was the words of Satan. I care for you more than God. You know what's better for you than God does. Don't do that. Don't go that way. Don't submit to that. This is what's going on. And so what does Jesus say to Peter? What does he say to him? Go back behind me. Get back behind me. You don't belong at my side advising me. And you sure don't belong in front of me commanding me or leading me. Where's his proper place? behind him. Now let me tell you a little something. 
absolutely free, no extra charge. Back in Matthew 4, when Satan's completed his three temptations, you recall what does Jesus say to him? He says, depart from me, he says. Well, actually, the verb he uses there is the same verb he uses to Peter here. But he doesn't say to Satan, depart and get behind me. He doesn't say that to Satan, but he does say it to Peter. Why? Because there is no hope or redemption for Satan. But there is for Peter. Peter is sinning, but Peter is a believer. He is a disciple. And so what Jesus says to him is, where you need to get is you need to get behind me. Not beside and not in front of, but behind me, following me. In fact, what Jesus is saying is the very next thing that he explains in the very next verse, right? What does verse 24 say? 23 says, get back behind me, Satan. Verse 24, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, well, actually that word after is the same word translated behind in verse 23. So I want you to get behind me, he says to Peter. And then he says to everybody, if anyone wants to come behind me, where I just told Peter to get, and where, by the way, you need to be, dear friend, and by the way, I need to be, the way to get behind him is what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And don't you see that that counters everything Satan tries to do? What does Satan try to do? Get us to affirm ourselves, seek our own will, and do what we want to do. But what's the path of discipleship? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and just remind me what do you do on a cross? Well, you die. There's just one thing you do on a cross. You die. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that's exactly what he says to Peter. And that's, that, that was Peter's problem. He'd got out from behind Jesus, and he'd put himself equal with Jesus, and actually had put himself before Jesus, telling Jesus what to do when Jesus already knew from the Father what he needed to do. You see that? So that's it in a snapshot. The counter to hearing that voice when as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a professed Christian, we hear that voice. We know what the Word of God says, but you know, there is a way around that. It seems hard. Here's a way that looks better. What's really wrong with that after all? What's so bad about that? What's so terrible about that? And perhaps a wife hears a husband's voice encouraging her, or a husband or a child hears a parent's voice or so forth, to, to just not be so serious about what God's Word says. After all, here's a perfectly good way to go. And at the heart of it is, God's way is not perfectly good, but we can figure a better way. And that's the voice of the tempter. So, let's look more specifically at how we can be ready to respond to it. First, the wisest attitude. Well, we see what Peter learned here. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's letter B, specifics. Number one, the wisest attitude for us to have. Peter himself, unsurprisingly, praise the Lord he learned from this. Praise the Lord he shared with us. <laughs> so turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And start it with verse 6. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, this is exactly what he wasn't doing at this point in Matthew 16. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And one way to do that is casting all your anxiety on him. See, that's how we humble ourselves. Our anxieties, we don't look for our own ways to deal with them as if there were no God. Cast them on God. Submit to God and the things you're worried about, give them to him. No, don't just give them to him, Peter says, throw them on to him. Like like baggage loaders do at an airport. I was just reminded of that. I, I happened to sit right by a window and saw what they do to baggage. Do that with your cares. <laughs> he says, pick them up and throw them. <laughs> but throw them on to God. Throw them on to God. 
And then he says, be of sober spirit, be watchful. Well, it's kind of like the first part of this sermon, isn't it? But that's just where I got it. That's just where I got it. Nothing good, I say, is, is original. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He always prowls around. He doesn't get tired. He's a spirit. He's not flesh and bones. He's always doing this. And I want you to notice, he says seeking someone to devour, which is to say anyone. He doesn't care who. He's always peckish. He's always hungry. And any targets as good as another. Seeking someone to devour. But resist him, he says, firm in the faith. And remember, Faith is not our building up confidence that something good's going to happen or all those other secular definitions. What is faith at its heart? It's submitting to the Word of God. And don't you recall, that's exactly what the, the, the setup was in each of these examples. In each of these examples, Eve knew what the Word of God was. Israel knew what the Word of God was. Jesus knew what the Word of God was. Peter knew what the Word of God was. And what does faith do? Faith submits to the Word of God. It doesn't say, God have pity, this will never happen, as Peter did. No, firm in the faith, he says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And then this happy note, I I shouldn't stop before, after you suffered for a little while, just 50, 80, 90 years, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. So Peter could have written this in his blood, couldn't he, from his experience. This is not not a theoretician. So often hearing pastors, sometimes I think that they should start by saying theoretically and then preach what they preach because they haven't walked a lot of those things. They they read them as theories. And we, we shouldn't. God works in our life to make sure we've got to try a lot of these things out first before we preach them. And sure did with Peter. He's not talking out of an ivory tower, is he? This isn't something he worked out in his word processor. This is something we saw him experience and learn from. And he turns to us and says, uh, you be sober, you be vigilant, you be on the lookout, and you stay firm in your faith, submitting yourself to God. So, that's the wisest attitude. And now it is to our good to consider the wisest atmosphere. Where's the best place we can put ourselves to help ourselves be vigilant constantly. Well, all these come from Hebrews. So turn first to Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. A few things that I think Christians don't think about enough, if at all, when they think about the purpose of church and what they should look for in a church. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 He says to them, see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, if you think about this, which I urge you to do, you might think of this as, well, that's really actually kind of a pastoral work he calls them to, isn't it? Yeah, it has the work of watching over others and, and taking care over their spiritual well-being, being, watching for signs of ill health spiritually, watching for signs that that heart's growing hard, that unbelief seems to be growing in that heart, that, that person seems to be pulling away from the Lord. But, but this is not pastors he's talking to, is it? Who's he talking to? He just says, brothers, just people in that church, all the people in that church. He calls them all to have this kind of ministry towards each other, constantly looking out lest they see these bad signs in one another. So do you see the connection? One of the ways that I can watch out for the enemy of my soul and watch out that he doesn't sneak into my mind and and take a hold of my tongue is be in a place where there's people watching out for me and be in, enough, be in close enough relations that they can see me, that they know what's going on in my life. Not just coming in 
two minutes after the service starts and leaving one second after it ends, but being part of the life of that church, involved in the life of that church, to where people would know if my heart were becoming hard, where people would know if I were beginning to distance myself from the Lord. This is one of the issues I have with these massive churches. A big church may make a big difference, but maybe not to little individuals so much. Because there's the need for, for fellowship and for closeness so that people can know us well enough to see and they can have enough of a relationship to be able to say something that we'll listen to in warning and exhorting us. So I know that there are people who make it their great desire to find churches where this will never happen to them. Where they can be sure that this will never happen. They keep far enough, will not become members, will not be part of what the, what's going on in the life. And it, it is to make exactly sure that exactly this exactly never happens. But this is for our own soul's well-being. This is what the Word of God tells us we need. So we've just been talking about how foolish it is to put our judgment over God's. Let's not. Secondly, Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Now, just about every translation says, let us consider how to. That is not literally what the Greek text says. And I I don't like just correcting unless it really matters. And here it does. The Greek text literally says, and let us consider one another. It's not considering tactics. It's considering people. Let us, and, and it's an intensified verb. Let us closely consider one another. Let us pay close attention to one another. He says, to stimulate to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say the day drawing near. Well, again, I think people at, at best, they think they go to church so they can hear the Bible. Well, that's true. That's good. That's not everything. We go to church so that I can apply the Bible, so that I can help my brothers and sisters grow. Let us closely consider one another. So I've got to come. Now, obviously, I can't, I can't do that um, over a live stream. And I'm glad that our live stream gets places I'll never go and can minister to people maybe who don't have a church. But I, I'm horrified by the thought that somebody who's able to get to a church they, they're able to get to the doctor, to the grocery store, to everything that's to maybe memorial services, everything that's important to them. But church is not important. They just watch TV for that. Well, you're watching TV and that's all you do. This is not what you're doing. You're out of God's will. If you're watching this or any other service, instead of going to church, you are out of God's will. Amen? This is what God... And I say instead of, I'm saying it's a choice, not unavoidable. There are cases where it is unavoidable, and I'm glad we can minister in places where people can't get out. But if it's simply a choice, and yes, I could go to church, but I prefer doing this, well, then I'm sinning against God. I think I'm smarter than God. I'm listening to the tempter telling me I should have pity on myself and not put myself to that trouble. And so I'm not in a position to do this. I'm not in a position to have relations with anybody let alone consider them closely, let alone consider them closely enough to poke them to live in good works and, and love and practical Christian living, as this verse calls us all to do. Finally, turn to Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Another aspect of the wisest atmosphere to be on the alert for Satan's team, uh, Satan's schemes. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Well, that's, that's good, isn't it? I must keep watch over my soul, but it's God's will that I have somebody, an actual flesh and blood person, keeping watch over my soul. And it's not John MacArthur, unless you attend his church. It's not John Piper. It's your flesh and blood in person elder or elders that he's talking about. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning. For this would be unprofitable for you. So this is what God means to happen in a church and and our part in it. 
to submit to this leadership. So obviously, I mean, we all know that it's God's will for us to be members of a church. What is it to be a member of a church? It's to say, this church is my family. I submit myself to its oversight, to its care for my soul. I submit myself to submit to that oversight, to hear and accept those warnings and those uh, admonitions. That's what it's all about. And so this is part of God's design for how we can be watched over and cared for and protected. So seek out a church where this is going on. That's part of being in the wisest atmosphere to be on guard. Find a church where this is going on. Become a member participating in a church where that's going on. And be part of the ministry that we're called to. Helping others and ourselves receiving that helping ministry. So there is God's counsel for ourselves being on guard against lending our minds and our tongues to the tempter's mind and the tempter's voice. Now, if there's anybody who goes off from this service saying, oh good, that was such a good sermon, I've got a list of people I want to call Satan, then you really haven't heard what I'm saying. (laughs) You really haven't heard. I've got a very short list of somebody I need to call Satan on a regular basis. You know what the name is? Daniel Julian Phillips. I need to listen for that voice in myself, and I have heard it. That voice comes in counseling me to feel sorry for my poor little beleaguered self, to feel so sorry that God's not taking better care and hasn't put me in a better place and that his will is so hard and he's calling me to so much. And then then appears as if by magic the easier way (laughs) and the brighter path. And you know whose voice that is? Boy, it feels so friendly and caring, but it's not. And we need to say to ourselves, get back behind Jesus, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking man's thoughts. Yeah, that's the name that needs to be on our list. And the best place in the world for any of us to be is behind Jesus. Amen? Lost soul, dear one who's come in, you need to be behind Jesus. You need to repent of your sin. You need to look to Him. Call on Him to save you. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and get behind Him. But Christian brother, Christian sister, that's exactly where you and I need to be too. It's the best place in the world. It's the only place in the world. Be behind Jesus. We need to humble ourselves. We need to keep watch over ourselves. We need to submit to the Word of God and get behind Jesus. He alone is our fortress. He alone is our high tower. He alone is our shield. He alone is our shepherd. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word from you, what a probing word it is. We pray that you'll give us ears to hear and minds to remember and a will to obey. Help us to keep watch over our souls as you call us to and help us to get and stay behind Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.